Thank you so much to everyone joining us for this second debate of term. The motion is, this house believes nuclear weapons have made the world safer. Just to run through the rules very briefly, the way it will work is that proposition will open the case, followed by opposition. Then there'll be a round of floor speeches where it's your chance as the audience to make your voices heard in speeches which are between one and two minutes. Then it will be our second proposition and opposition speaker, followed by another round of floor speeches, and then our final set of proposition and opposition speakers. During the paper speeches, it's your prerogative as members to shout point of information to make your voices heard, but it's also the prerogative of the paper speakers, the six sitting here, to reject this and move on with their speech. So, without further ado, let's proceed with the debate tonight. And apologies for starting ever so slightly late. First up, we have Tom Pate. Tom is a third-year history student at King's and is the current chair of the Cambridge University Conservative Association. Tom, you have the ears of the house. Thank you, Mr. President, and good evening. Since 1945, we've been living in a world in which questions of conflict and security have been significantly changed by the existence of nuclear weapons. Obviously and inescapably, these weapons are terrifyingly destructive. And as a result, they have made a deep psychological impression. Much of the world's population lives in countries which have chosen to develop and maintain a nuclear arsenal. And this country has numbered among them since 1952. For as long as we've had nuclear weapons, the first obvious thing to note is that fortunately, we spent a lot of time thinking and arguing about them rather than actually using them. Against the backdrop of gradual nuclear proliferation, policymakers and the public have continuously asked why states choose to have nuclear weapons and whether it is right for them to do so. At the heart of the debate, however, I think, is the question that we're considering here tonight. Are we safer for living in a world with nuclear weapons? I believe that we have been. I do think it's important that we're not complacent about nuclear weapons, and nor should we simply submit to receive wisdom about them. However, I will contend that nuclear weapons have made a significant difference to the considerations of making war between states, or at least between nuclear-armed great powers and those under their protection, and that the result of these developments has been greater security than we have seen throughout most of our history. The foundational piece of thinking for those of us who believe the nuclear weapons have, by and large, made the world safer, is the concept of nuclear deterrence. The view that the behavior of states in competition or conflict with one another can be limited by the risk of the use of nuclear weapons against them. In short, that they can be deterred from certain actions by the prospect of the sort of massive retaliation the nuclear weapons can deliver. Not yet, I'd like to make a bit more progress. Why might this work? What makes nuclear weapons different so as to stay the hand of those who might otherwise launch into conflict? The starting point of the conflict, or the point at which one might be threatening to conceive it, and this is the stage of conflict that I will be emphasizing particularly during the speech, is fraught with uncertainty. Decisions about war at this point are rarely simple. Traditionally, conventional warfare relies upon achieving one's goals through the application of force to overmatch an opponent and dismantle either their ability to resist or to conduct further effective offensive action. It would be an overstatement of the facts to say that nuclear weapons have completely changed the nature of war in this way. 
But what I will focus on now is that I do think they have changed the calculations that people tend to make before making decisions about fighting. The difference that I think nuclear weapons have made here is that nuclear armed states are equipped with an incredibly powerful option of last resort, which can suddenly turn a situation which looks likely to result in victory for their opponent into a defeat. This can add a very significant complication for states and policymakers. It becomes much more difficult then for them to think about how to manage the impact of conflict and its consequences upon themselves. And it also becomes much harder for them to think about what an acceptable cost might look like if a decision to escalate towards conflict is taken. The key here is that a nuclear strike might well start to look pretty unacceptable from the point of view of those making decisions about conflict with the limited information that they have at this sort of level. The intuitive reason for that is that nuclear weapons can impart an awful lot of destruction towards an opponent or a potential opponent's vital interests, their population, their economy, their own military capabilities, their infrastructure, beyond that even the destruction of their land and their cultural heritage, the long-lasting risk caused by radiation. A single or even a few bombs can have some of these effects. It does not require an adversary excuse me, to threaten to attempt to annihilate another country with the full force of their nuclear arsenal to give them pause. Nuclear weapons are also very hard to defend against and have become, from the perspective of an opponent, worryingly survivable. Even the prospect of launching a first strike in an attempt to disable an adversary's own nuclear systems is difficult and highly unpredictable. A so-called decapitation strike against command and control is not certain to remove all means of organizing some form of retaliation. Ballistic missile-carrying submarines can be very difficult to detect and destroy before they have already fired. The British nuclear deterrent incidentally takes this particular form. Of course, conventional warfare can be massively destructive too. And so you might argue, well, why hasn't that shown similar deterrent effects? But what I think sets nuclear deterrents apart, the size of nuclear weapons, their resultant destructive power that they're able to deliver in a single flash, and the difficulty of defending against them, has contributed significantly to making politicians more cautious. So, Winston Churchill stated in the earlier days of nuclear development that if the advance of destructive weapons enables everyone to kill everybody else, nobody will want to kill anyone at all. But I think since then we can see this sentiment was probably an exaggeration of the effects of nuclear deterrence. Nuclear deterrence clearly has not prevented all war. That much is obvious, and indeed even during the Cold War, probably the period most associated with nuclear standoffs and stalemates, many parts of the world still bore witness to brutal conflict from Vietnam to Afghanistan to Angola. What we have not seen, though, is another global conflict between great powers on the scale of slaughter and destruction that accompanied the first half of the 20th century, and that this has at least coincided with those same great powers developing nuclear weapons. You might ask to what extent can the long peace really be explained by the advent of the bomb? Of course, there may well have been other factors at play. The creation of better international methods for dispute resolution, the integration of the global economy, increased norms against conflict, or sheer dumb luck. I do not think the nuclear weapons have or are some kind of silver bullet to stop human conflict. Nor are they, um, sorry, excuse me. Nor are they the sole cause of relative peace that we have relatively enjoyed since the Second World War. I do think, however, that they have played a decisive role it's difficult to prove a negative from my perspective, but if you look at the record of how nuclear weapons have affected the behavior of states, at the right moments, they have been pretty influential in encouraging forbearance. It's certainly right to worry about the prospect of nuclear war, but it's also important to remember that conventional war between great powers is certainly bad enough 
and that since the advent of nuclear weapons, we've seen a lot less of it. It's also not clear to me that a denuclearized world, however you might go about actually achieving that in the first place, would be a better one, even from the perspective of nuclear weapons use. Nuclear weapons cannot be uninvented, and I know that there's been plenty of debate over whether or not nuclear technology might be abandoned or superseded for various reasons, but I'm not yet convinced that it would be, for the basic reasons that I outlined earlier, at least not yet. History is not a perfect source of proof, but we do have a clear example of how nuclear development proceeded during an age when the technology was there or was supposed to be there, but no bombs actually existed in a time of global conflict and competition. Of course, this was the case during the Second World War. The Western allies, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, each pursued nuclear development, largely on the basis that the other guy might get there first. The dynamics of a situation where nuclear weapons are redeveloped in a rush to establish a nuclear monopoly, however short-lived, does not seem preferable to me compared to the situation we have now of long-established nuclear arsenals and postures. Finally, it might be objected that even if one grants the point that nuclear weapons have had some role in preventing something like a third world war, we cannot guarantee that deterrence will hold. That may be true up to a point, but I think that we do have reason to be confident in our ability to make deterrence work. For example, in the current international conflicts in which nuclear armed states are involved at whatever level, despite the words of some national leaders, restraint continues to be exercised. The case that I put to this house is that we have largely been successful in making our most terrible weapons work for peace. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom, for that engaging and insightful speech um, and for opening up the debate of this evening in such an interesting way. Speaking first in opposition of this motion is Ward Wilson. Ward Wilson is the um, fellow and director of the Rethinking Nuclear Weapons Project at the British American Security Information Council. He's published a book called Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons, which was met with great acclaim. And we're grateful that he's um, joined us from across the pond today. Thank you very much, Ward Wilson. Thank you. Mm. The statement that nuclear weapons have made the world safer is on its face false. Adding nuclear weapons to the world makes nuclear war possible. A nuclear war would reasonably be estimated to kill 250 million people. Adding the possibility of nuclear war to a, the world obviously makes the world more dangerous, not safer. The only way that nuclear weapons make the world safer is, <clears throat> sorry, if they can do some good, like increased stability, and at the same time, the dangers they pose can be avoided with 100% certainty. If nuclear weapons do some good, but also eventually touch off a nuclear war, then the world has not been made safer. The only way nuclear weapons make the world safer is if they can, it can be shown that the dangers they pose can be avoided. <coughs> Let's look at two of the most severe dangers and see if there are convincing arguments that they will not occur. It's frequently said that because there hasn't been a war between great powers since nuclear weapons arrived in 1945, 
that nuclear weapons prevent great power wars. So that's the first risk we'll examine. Can nuclear weapons prevent wars between great powers? And it's often said that nuclear deterrence is a system that has been stable for many decades, and therefore that it can reliably, nuclear deterrence is a system that can reliably prevent nuclear war. So let's look at deterrence second. So, wars between great powers. Unfortunately, the belief that nuclear weapons can prevent wars between great powers is no more than wishful thinking. It's often said that the 78 years since Hiroshima and Nagasaki have passed without a single conflict between nuclear-armed great powers, and that is certainly so. But the nature of human beings makes any claim that wars between great powers can be avoided forever extremely unlikely. The hold that war has on us is far stronger than we are usually comfortable admitting. Examine the history of our civilization, what Winston Churchill once called that, that dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. And you will clearly see that human beings have deep-rooted urges to make war. It is not, let me keep going for a sec. It is not pleasant to make this point, but the stakes involved require that we be brutally honest with ourselves. We have been fighting wars with dogged persistence for at least 6,000 years. Every era of history and region of the world has experienced war with disheartening regularity. There are sometimes pauses and respites, sometimes for even as much as 100 years, but war is a savagery that only sleeps. The American philosopher William James explained the persistence of war in this way. Our ancestors have bred pugnacity into our bone and marrow, and thousands of years of peace won't breed it out of us. If humans were to suddenly give up fighting wars, it would be a revolution in human nature. Overcoming our urge to make war would be like losing our predisposition for religion, our love of beauty, our tendency to overeat. The belief that nuclear weapons can prevent war between great powers is basically a belief that human nature has been changed overnight by these weapons. This sounds suspiciously like the claims that idealists make, that human nature can be overcome if we just wish for it hard enough and we just believe it with all our might. Trusting that human nature can change overnight is not a realist's argument. It is an optimist's argument, an idealist's argument. But nuclear weapons have not changed our natures. The heretofore unquenchable desire for unbridled war has not now been tamed forever. No matter what nuclear weapons advocates optimistically claim, nuclear weapons do not ensure that our darker primitive natures will never again overwhelm our sensible, rational selves. There's no doubt that the risk of using nuclear weapons can restrain thoughts of war some of the time. But can the magic of nuclear weapons dissuade powerful and determined leaders from clashing forever? 
What advocates of nuclear weapons ignore when they point to the 78 years without a war between great powers is that that total only amounts to 1.3% of the evidence. The other 5,922 years tell a different story. Sadly, nuclear weapons have not transformed our warlike natures into calm and peaceful ones. Unbridled war, fought with savage abandon, is still likely, perhaps even inevitable. If you doubt that nuclear armed states can come to blows, let me remind you that the United States is currently a hair's breadth away from being directly involved in the war in Ukraine. And it appears to be making plans for war with China over Taiwan. People in the United States certainly think great power war is coming. An International Red Cross survey of millennials asked Amer Americans if they thought a worldwide war like World War II would happen in their lifetimes. More than 58% said yes. And this was in 2019 before the explosion of the Ukraine war and the war in the Middle East. The belief that nuclear weapons have made wars between nuclear armed states impossible is no more than a dangerous fantasy. All the evidence of our history and everything we know about ourselves tells us that our warlike natures cannot change overnight. That is the sound of realism talking. Which leaves nuclear deterrence. Nuclear deterrence can fail, has failed, and will fail. Nuclear deterrence has failed in the past. In 1948, when the US had a monopoly on nuclear weapons, it didn't deter Stalin from risking a, a blockade of Berlin, which could easily have led to, to war. In 1950, when the United States moved nuclear-capable bombers to Guam and then leaked news of the move that didn't deter China from joining the war in Korea. Uh, everyone knew that Israel had nuclear weapons in 1973. It had been reported in the New York Times. But that didn't deter Egypt and Syria from launching a war against Israel. And in 1982, Britain's nuclear weapons didn't deter Argentina from attacking and briefly capturing the Falkland Islands. Nuclear deterrence has failed repeatedly in the past. Sure. I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying, but I, I, I'm sympathetic to the question. None of those cases involve existential threats to the great right power Do you think that makes a difference or not? I don't. Do you, would you argue that? Um, the United States is unable to defend Hawaii with its nuclear weapons because it's a distant island far from the central part of the United States. Would you argue that um, an enemy of the United Kingdom could bomb smallish towns with nuclear weapons because they aren't essential to the existence of the state? I think a nuclear attack is a nuclear attack. Um, let me go on. Um, so the failures, which is not to say that nuclear deterrence cannot and will not work. There's no question that nuclear deterrence works some of the time. The problem with nuclear deterrence is that in order to be safe, it has to work all the time. It has to be perfect. Even a single failure could lead to a vast and destructive war. 
Nuclear deterrence will inevitably fail because it has a crucial component built into it that can fail catastrophically, that has a history of failure. And that component is us, human beings. Human beings are fallible. Not just frontline soldiers, leaders as well. No one's perfect. I'm not perfect. Are you perfect? Human beings play an essential role in nuclear deterrence. Human beings make the threats, and other human beings evaluate them and decide how to respond to those threats. Nuclear deterrence isn't a machine that runs quietly in the corner. We are integral to the process. So if human beings are prone to folly, and we are, and if human beings are involved in nuclear deterrence, and we manage every step, then nuclear deterrence is, by definition, inherently flawed. It will fail repeatedly. One day our luck will run out, and we'll end up in a devastating war. It's not a question of if. It's just a matter of when. It is not realism to rely on a process that will eventually result in a catastrophic war. Nuclear weapons make the world more dangerous. It is not possible to completely rule out the possibility of nuclear war. Therefore, any objective, realistic assessment must conclude that nuclear weapons do not make the world safer. Um, now, moving back to our paper speakers, because we started slightly late, I don't think there's time for another round of floor speeches. So moving back to our paper speakers, we have um, Professor Paul Schulte. Having previously served as the Director of Proliferation and Arms Control for the UK Ministry of Defence and the UK Commissioner on the UN Commissions for Iraqi Disarmament, Paul is now a non-senior associate at the Carnegie Nuclear Policy Programme. Oh. No. Uh, yes, no, sorry, I thought I'd read the wrong one there for a second. <laughs> no, Professor, you have the ears of the house, and my apologies. Well, whatever my trick had passed, I'm properly delighted and honoured to be able to speak at such a world centre for humane rationality. And that's a big tribute for an unrepentant LSE graduate to me. <laughs> um, but it's double-edged, because as I shall point out, there are dangers in concluding or voting that the world will run according to the decent preferences of the Cambridge Union. And I'd like to start by complimenting the opposition in this. Um, I don't doubt their long-term personal commitment to the nuclear problem. They agree with me on its huge importance and its complexity, I think. I know they've, spe they've spent about as many decades obsessing about it as I have. And I don't doubt their horror about the risks and their emotional commitment to nuclear abolition. But I shall have fiercely and necessarily skeptical, skeptical things to say about the assumptions of nuclear elimination. Because nuclear weapons matter so much their cultural and strategic impacts are continuous, and they are profound. They don't just sit in silos and submarines until they explode or are scrapped. 
Their numbers, ranges, through weights, deployments, declaratory postures empower or threaten or reassure. They change mentalities and they structure geopolitical space. As Schlesinger, the former US Secretary of Defense said, we use them every day. That's true of all nuclear powers. But the way their weapons are used can be defensive or aggressive, reassuring or coercive, restrained and open to good faith negotiation, or very evidently the opposite. So it's essential tonight to avoid the fallacy of the undistributed, undifferentiated we. So much depends upon the intentions and behavior of the states or the alliances concerned and the nuclear adversaries they face. Remember that loose talk of us may mean everyone, everywhere in the world, or treaty observant democratic status quo states like the NATO alliance and its nuclear protected regions like the Baltics or academic East Anglia, or it could be US allies like Japan. Or does we also refer to revisionist nuclear autocracies rearming fast like Russia and China, or to their anxious and suffering neighbors? This liberal humane house ought to remember that as we elegantly debate here, Russia has been using its nuclear weapons first to enable and then relentlessly prosecute an aggressive and illegal war of colonial reconquest, hundreds of thousands of deaths, more as we speak. By repeated threats of nuclear escalation, it is trying to limit NATO assistance to Ukraine. It has particularly well worked out very clever doctrines of cross-domain coercion, enabling its nuclear arsenal to offset Western conventional potential, which could tear apart the unexpectedly weak Russian conventional forces. This is called, in Russian doctrine, strategic deterrence. It combines formidable intercontinental and theater weaponry, nuclear signaling, relentless scary information warfare, and the compromise or bribery of opposing politicians and opinion formers. It's a very effective mixed strategy. It may win Putin his war on Ukraine. It may achieve, therefore, the subjection or death of 40 million Ukrainians. Please don't try to tell Ukrainians or Balts or Poles or other threatened nationalities that available nuclear weapons are irrelevant and dangerous for them. And probably don't bother to try persuading Mr. Putin that he would have better options for his world vision by giving up his nuclear arsenal. So that's the actually existing world in which nuclear weapons are being used with astonishingly little international condemnation and considerable active support for their active misuse. My overall point, please take away, is that another world may be possible in which nuclear weapons would universally disappear. Nobody can permanently rule that out. We have to keep trying to recapture and reopen optimistic possibilities where we prudently can. But remember, that transformed world couldn't just be this world minus nukes. It would have to be fundamentally different in a countless number of ways. Yet our actually existing world lacks an international system which could create or support or guarantee those permanent necessary changes. Things are actually going the other way. The big open but unmentionable secret is that despite endless schemes, initiatives, and conferences, no military, diplomatic, technical, and legal architecture has been proposed which offers reliable, enforceable, and irreversibly permanent nuclear disarmament. This is a huge, wicked collective action problem. No one knows how to solve it. The option then of a nuclear-free world that you might want to select is, I'm afraid, no longer available if it ever was. So that's an unpopular thing to say. I don't sense people want to hear this.
It's a kind of blasphemy against the promises of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and endless UN resolutions or P5 statements. I can find it leads to pained, disapproving silences in large parts of Western academia. More importantly, if you say that publicly in international fora, it inflicts, inflicts reputational damage on your state. Any official, and that was, I was once one, from a nuclear nation or ally who publicly acknowledged that this was their private national judgment of possibility, they would face endlessly resounding accusations of hypocrisy. So it doesn't get said. The exception is, of course, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, who, with honest intimidation, state that the regime intends to keep their nuclear weapons forever, and who, who's to stop them. Acknowledging these realities doesn't mean you like them, and failure to confront them doesn't mean they disappear, but it does mean that you are crippled in your ability to manage them. We don't here have to talk in the watered-down prose of well-meaning NGOs, conference final documents, or UN reports. We can be more clear and honest than that. I spent lots of my professional life working on multilateral treaties to limit or ban weapons of mass destruction or prevent conventional war in Europe. I don't regret those years. It was worth trying in the hopeful situation of that time. But I don't try to hide how far things have fallen apart since the end of the post-Cold War honeymoon. In the actually existing world, I'd argue it's now intellectually dishonest, though it may be diplomatically necessary to anticipate widespread compliance from treaty signatories. And the international community will do very little to correct that. This pattern ought to be unsurprising. It's part of an increasingly open struggle over world order. It happened in the 1930s when growing conflict in the international system broke treaties. Remember the Kellogg-Briand Pact? Probably not and tore security guarantees apart. Now, in this current and imaginable international system, states lie, they cheat, and they never admit it, particularly about WMD. We, here, the whole world, saw evidence of massive offensive biological programs begun by the Soviet Union after it had signed the Biological Weapons Treaty, which banned them but had no verification. It was revealed by defectors and reluctantly partially admitted by the Russian Federation, never convincingly dismantled. Their position now is it never happened. Don't talk about it. As Solzhenitsyn famously pointed out about autocratic regimes in his time, they lie to us. They, we know they're lying. They know that we know that they're lying, and still they go on lying. He might have pointed out today that they're allies and proxies and sympathizers and useful idiots seek to support and excuse them in this. So how much safer could we be by signing far-reaching treaties with people who we know will cheat? And on other areas, we should remember CW, chemical weapons. Remember Novichok? That was started after the chemical weapons convention that Russia signed in order to evade it. That nice Mr. Gorbachev signed that. Now it is used to try and kill the Skripals and Navalny. Uh, there's an ongoing scandal over Syrian chemical use that you may know. You may have noticed those children dying on camera with foam from organophosphates in their mouths. Um, that's undiscussable. The Russian position, it never happens. The Syrians never used ever chemical weapons against their own people. And, of course, the Syrians are only happy to emphasize this. And this is blocked in the Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. This is something the international community can't deal with. That's how it goes. Everybody knows.
Treaty regime fragility is a thing, think about that, take it away with you. Treaties don't stay adequate. They erode, they get sabotaged. It happens, it has happened, and would happen with an ambitious nuclear treaty. And that's where we are now. Belief in these treaties as a way out is less and less plausible. What are the chances of universal conversion to make treaties reliable? Who's going to make Pyongyang, Pyongyang allow a, a chapter of the international community of, against nuclear weapons? Um, what's going to change the calculus of the politburos around, around the world in China or Russia or, and, and, and the IRGC about the looming perhaps inevitable Iranian nuclear program. Uh, where will there be um, propaganda allowed to, to, to change people's opinion in those states, assuming they want to change? Because nuclear weapons seem actually to be very popular whenever they're required. And the world is not waiting to be told to, to start thinking like well-intentioned, well-meaning Western NGOs. Um, just one final parting memory. Um, Despite my boyish good looks, I wasn't old enough to be at Wood Woodstock. I did see the film, though. It's worth seeing again and again. There is in that film a moment when this crowd who feel good about each other, who want to feel that they're living in a better and endlessly improvable world, see the clouds coming overhead. And their response is, they link arms and they shout, no rain, no rain. It's, it's charming. And isn't that where we are now, with people who say, no nukes, no nukes? But it's worse because that didn't affect the heavens back in 69 in Woodstock. To say that now gives comfort to the information technologists and politicians and strategists in countries which are not much tempted by the non-nuclear option. So remember, if you vote this, what the implications are. You're voting to say you're willing to give all these things up in the sure and certain knowledge that there's no reason to believe that the Russians, Chinese, or name who, Iranians, whatever, are going to do the same. That's the worst possible message you can give to threatened nationalities like the Ukrainians and the Balts, and who knows what to come. So with that in mind, I call on you to reject the, the self-defeating and demoralizing signal and therefore support the motion I've introduced. Thank you. Professor Schulter, thank you for that engaging speech. Now moving on to the second opposition speaker, we have Florian Embelkamp. Florian is the, um, Flor is the policy advocate for the International Campaign Against um, Nuclear Weapons, a Nobel Prize winning group. Ernard has contributed significantly in this domain for a while. Florian, you have the ears of the house. Thank you, thank you very much indeed, and it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for all of you to come. I am, I guess, a part of one of these well-intending Western NGOs, but um, people picking at us at a debate in Cambridge maybe proves the point that we have a right and that the opposition to what we do is largely based on ideology more than on facts. I'm not here, I can reassure you, to talk about stuff that happened a long time ago in Woodstock or in the Cold War, long before me and most of you have been born. I want to talk about the reality right here, right now, in Europe. I'm here, of course, to challenge this dangerous and, I think, naive belief that nuclear weapons have kept anyone safe. 
that they are, through nuclear deterrence, a stabilizing force between nuclear weapon states. It is, of course, true that we have not seen a major conflict between great powers, which, for example, the, the US and Russia. But this, of course, alone does not validate the effectiveness of nuclear deterrence. And Cambridge seems like the strangest place to say this, but correlation is not causation. And you will all have heard this, this, uh, this sentence in one of the methods classes you have, you have taken here. Causal attribution based on correlation is usually overly simplistic and therefore flawed. In fact, nuclear weapons are irrelevant for today's security concerns. They are, let me say this, basically like a gigantic teddy bear that the nuclear armed states can hug when they feel scared. They are also, of course, really radioactive, kill everyone when things go wrong, and contaminate the environment for decades. Fortunately, most governments have realized this and signed respective treaties with the goal of complete nuclear disarmament. Relying on nuclear deterrence simply ignores the complexities of global politics, and the reality tells a stif different story about nuclear weapons than what our opposition is trying to tell us. So let's talk about the reality right now, right here in Europe. Let's address the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In my opinion, the most obvious example of how nuclear deterrence has failed and how, nu how nuclear weapons do not keep anyone safe. Not the military, not the civil population, not even the Russian leadership, and definitely not the rest of the world. Nuclear weapons are used to intimidate and blackmail other states not to help Ukraine in order to facilitate war, not to facilitate peace. Some say that Ukraine would have avoided this invasion if it had kept the Soviet nukes on its territory. I think that's not true. The foundation of the modern Ukrainian state was conditional precisely on removing these warheads and certainly a nuclear con confrontation with the largest nuclear arsenal in the world would not have contributed to national Ukrainian, regional or let alone global security. The problem in this scenario is, though, is of course that not is not that Ukraine agreed to remove these nukes from its territory, but that Russia got to keep them. Nuclear weapons create danger, not safety. We all remember when Putin started this invasion, he threatened to use nuclear weapons against anyone interfering, as we just heard. Nuclear weapons were used for what they are meant, to mass murder civilians. Putin wanted to shield the invasion against the motion, debated, uh, wanted to shield the invasion um, with nukes and create safety for his soldiers. And I guess we all agree that serving a strong evidence against the motion debated here today, these nuclear threats were not successful. Ukraine is not defeated. Military aid is flowing into the country to a large degree from other nuclear weapon states such as the UK. The Russian army is exposed as weak, unprofessional and unprotected. Give me a sec, I'll get to that point. So if this proposed motion were true, let me ask you, why not send nuclear weapons to Ukraine now? Wouldn't that make you feel safer? No? Maybe then you have learned from the Russians. Turns out Russian nuclear weapons don't even keep Russia safe. In self-defense, Ukraine has targeted the Russian army, including on Russian territory. Several strikes on military bases in the regions bordering Ukraine exposed the army to attacks from a foreign army. Yes, go ahead. Don't you think maybe if Russia didn't have nuclear weapons, there'd be quite possibly the NATO forces would be engaging in a land war inside Russia right now. Speculation. <laughs> so my point is, if not to prevent the foreign army from bombing your own army, 
And what is nuclear deterrence actually good for? Where is this global safety, allegedly, from these weapons if they don't even protect your own soldiers? There's a second argument to learn about the fallacy of nuclear deterrence in this context. Proponents of nuclear weapons, such as the British government, have presented two inherently illogical arguments. So on the one hand, they dismiss the Russian threats. They say they are not deterred by these actions. They keep supplying weapons to Ukraine and maintain that these weapons deliveries do not heighten the chances of nuclear war with Russia. On the other hand, they insist that Russia, in turn, will be deterred by our own nuclear deterrent. And therefore, we need to modernize and maintain the British nuclear arsenal. So they tell us simultaneously to not believe Putin's threats, to not let him deter us in helping Ukraine, and also to maintain and strengthen our own nuclear deterrence. Go ahead. Yes, the German government has made the same point again but with every other category of weapons that they have delivered, and eventually they did. So let's see how that specific weapon turns out. So the UK government, also the German government, must be confident that they can out-deter Putin in this scenario. And that really doesn't sound like a strategy for global safety to me. Let me ask you then directly, what else does Putin have to do for you to genuinely feel deterred to stop sending weapons to Ukraine? Nuclear deterrence was made for people like him, and he's using the playbook quite well. He's indicted for war crimes. He's repeatedly targeted civilians. He wouldn't have to fear any political consequences whatsoever from using a nuclear weapon. He hates the West for being woke and soft and weak. And he's stuck in a war that will likely carry on for years. On top of that, he has a modern nuclear arsenal on land, on sea, and in air. So if this doesn't deter us, then either nuclear, doesn't, nuclear deterrence doesn't work, or it's only deemed credible when employed by certain nations, but not others. Russia is, of course, not the only nuclear armed state who fails to be protected by its nuclear arsenal. In January alone, so the last three weeks, four nuclear weapon states were attacked by various adversaries, including the armies of other states, of other nuclear weapon states. The US Navy was attacked by Iran and the Houthis. Yes, please. Was this a question or? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, if you watch the video, then you, maybe you find the state, the spot where I said exactly that, that the foundation of the Ukrainian state was conditional on giving this up. So it was never an option, apart from the fact that, of course, the control of these weapons remained in Moscow. Um, so in January alone, four nuclear weapon states have been attacked despite having nuclear weapons. The US Navy by Iran and the Houthis, Israel repeatedly from Hamas and Hezbollah, Pakistan saw Iranian missiles rain down in its province of Balochistan, and of course Russia, as I mentioned, in Ukraine, in the region bordering Ukraine in Belgorod, and even in the suburbs of Moscow and St. Petersburg. So the absence of war between the US and Russia is absolutely no proof for the stabilizing force of nuclear weapons. Rather, 
My point is that these, these events in the last couple of weeks provide enough evidence for the opposite. Nuclear weapons have not kept the world safe. The UK, as we have heard, has witnessed a similar situation in the Falkland Islands when the Argentinian army was definitely not deterred by the British nuclear weapons and it required a conventional, not a nuclear response by the UK government to retake control. So again, how have nuclear weapons actually contributed to anyone's safety in this situation? As a third argument, let's examine the ever-growing spending and modernization of nuclear arsenals. The motion debated here today postulates that nuclear weapons have made the world safer. Why then, let me ask, do all nine nuclear weapon states modernize their arsenals heavily and consistently? 80 billion US dollars were spent on modernizing nuclear weapons in 2021, and another 83 billion US dollars were spent on modernizing nuclear weapons in 2022. In other words, dumping 80 billion dollars on one single category of weapons has not fulfilled this alleged purpose of creating safety. <coughs> Where was the added security from the first chunk? Does anyone here feel safer now than they did a couple of years ago? Now, we've also heard from Sarah, I believe, that the Falkland war and of course the Middle East war and even Ukraine and of course the proxy wars in the, in the Cold War, that's still better than World War III you might think. And therefore nuclear weapons have a legitimate place in global security. It's Yes, but in any case, nuclear weapons were not in place to prevent a war or to create safety for people in the Falkland Islands, for example. So, if you say all these small wars in the Cold War in Afghanistan, even the Falklands, even Ukraine, that's still better than World War III, you might have a point to say, okay, nuclear weapons have a place in global security. It's surely a convenient claim that World War III would start immediately if we now abolish nuclear weapons. And World War III would, of course, kill more people than some measly proxy war. And more dead, obviously, I agree with that, is much worse than less death. Hooray, nuclear weapons. Um, under this point of view, of course, let's get this straight. Humans in faraway, less privileged lands are deemed worthless and sacrifice, are getting sacrificed for the facade of security for those with nukes. Ideologists in the capitals of the nuclear powers get to laud the success of nuclear deterrence, while innocent lives in Ukraine, in Vietnam, and elsewhere are lost in the wars facilitated, not prevented by nuclear weapons. The belief in nuclear deterrence as a stabilizing force is misguided. They fail to prevent conflicts evident in Russia's war in Ukraine and attacks on other nuclear weapon states. Nuclear weapons have absolutely no magic ability to make the world safer, to prevent wars, or even to protect those having them. Nuclear weapons are military useless, morally indefensible, inhumane, and illegal. I urge you to reject this motion. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who contributed for floor speeches um, and, and the things that make these debates the best, uh, active audience participation. So thank you so much to everyone. Now, finally, as our speaker in proposition of the motion, third proposition is Hugh Strawn. Hugh, Professor Hugh Strawn has taught at both Oxford and St Andrews, where he's been for a long time, and he's also written an enormous deal on the First World War. Professor Strawn, you have the ears of the house. Thank you. Thank you.
I don't think I'm going to talk about the First World War, uh, but we may get there. When the Cold War ended, there were two arguments, particularly here in the United Kingdom, that used to go round in terms of the relevance or irrelevance of nuclear weapons. The first was, uh, from those who opposed nuclear weapons, they won't stop suicide bombers. The second, from the point of view of those who favoured the retention of nuclear weapons, is they are our long-term security. We don't actually see right now what the problem is, but that's why we need them, because a problem will come along one day. Now, both those arguments were silly. Uh, they were silly in the first case because, self-evidently, nuclear weapons were not designed to deal with insurgents or terrorists. It was a totally inappropriate application of the purpose of nuclear weapons if you believe they have a purpose. And the second argument was silly for another reason, which was that it failed to engage with the here and now. It posited some time in the future as yet to be explained. Remember the euphoria, of course, at the end of the Cold War and the, and the Berlin Wall coming down and so on, the moment when people thought, in inverted commas, uh, that history was over um, and perpetual peace had arrived. Um, it posited some point in the future when they would once again it required, but it lacked any substance. It lacked any concrete explanation. And the consequence of that, on both sides, was a failure to debate nuclear weapons seriously. One of the observations that plenty of people have made to me as I've come here tonight is that actually it's interesting we don't debate it like we used to in the 1980s. It ceases to be a subject of public engagement. And that is partly the responsibility of the six of us who are here to propose or oppose is that there has been a failure to engage sufficiently on the whole subject, despite the best endeavours of certainly of those who oppose nuclear weapons, to get public engagement and public interest. And that matters in democratic states, and one of my fellow proposers, of course, referred to the problems in states that are, democracy, are not democracies, but in democratic states, that matters because in democratic states, we expect the public to be part of what our deterrence posture is. We expect our public to engage in the purposes for which we are defending them or possibly in whose name we are going to war. Um, and if you have no debate, then they have no ownership. National resilience is a big part of deterrence. If you believe if you plan to attack a country, that the population is not supportive of the government, is divided and disunited, then you presumably think striking them with nuclear weapons might have a better effect, or indeed threatening them to strike them with nuclear weapons might have a better effect. So what we have done, in a way, by advancing silly arguments, is moved to a stupid position. And what I want to argue is that actually we need to think a bit more intelligently about this. Uh, and above all, what we need to think about, and for those who are proposing uh, the motion, what we need to think about is the way in which we integrate more closely the position of nuclear weapons within strategy. Because essentially what has happened from the point of view of those in government, in countries which possess nuclear weapons, is they have failed to engage in this public debate to which I've referred. And the fear has been, if you do engage in a debate, you will lose the argument. 
that you will lose the moment where you have public support and therefore don't raise the topic. Don't have an inquiry. Don't question why it is right now Britain is renewing its nuclear deterrence when it's struggling to keep its manpower levels up uh, as far as conventional forces are concerned. Because if you do, you will lose that. Striking that the Royal Navy, uh, that is the possessor of Britain's uh, nuclear deterrent, uh, that manages our SSBNs, that they refer to them as political weapons. In other words, they see them as somehow nothing to do with them, they're just using them on behalf of the government. In a way, of course, constitutionally, that's right. But what that does mean is we aren't thinking where they belong in that spectrum between war and peace and what the relationship is there in terms of deterrence and prevention. Now, those arguments have changed fundamentally uh, since the invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. And those who have challenged the possession of nuclear weapons and those who, as on my side of the house, uh, favour their continuation, have been forced to up their game. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has brought major war back to Europe for the first time since 1945. This is exactly the situation for which the arguments for nuclear deterrence and for the possession of nuclear weapons were designed. If they're not going to be relevant now, when, if ever, will they be relevant? Certainly, as you've already heard, Putin thinks they are relevant. One calculation given me by a Norwegian friend, he's obviously been counting as better things to do in the small hours of the morning than the rest of you, or certainly me, is that since February 2022, if you add up all the references to nuclear weapons issued from Russia, not just from Putin, but for others in the administration, well, well over 150 instances so far. In other words, the threat of nuclear weapons has been used by Russia, whether explicitly or implicitly, since the beginning of the invasion. And if you look at the United States, the accusation levelled again and again against President Biden has been that he seems to take those threats seriously and that he and his national security adviser, Jake Sullivan, have been accused of being self-deterred, in other words, reluctant to give Ukraine the weapons which it needs, especially in relation to long-range missiles, for fear of escalation. But the point I want to make to you this evening is there has been no escalation. Sure, the war in Ukraine is existential. It's certainly existential for Ukraine. It's possibly existential for Russia and is possibly even existential for data. But despite all those pressures for escalation, it still has not escalated. And I mean that in two senses. First of all, as you all know, it has not gone nuclear for all those threats. Those threats have meant, in reality, nothing in terms of actual delivery, thank goodness. Many people speculated that there might be use of tactical nuclear weapons, uh, that they might reinforce the conventional uh, battle as far as Russia was concerned, and that fitted in with Russian doctrine. Um, that even, not even that has happened. And crucially, the war has not spread geographically. If you were running this war in any normal sense, yes. That is perfectly true. Of course it hasn't spread yet. Uh, you've got the power of, 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 of looking into the crystal ball. Uh, 
uh, there are many other problems. I, absolutely. I... Yeah. <laughs> it has still not spread geographically. And what I meant by that is that it has not spread to Poland, for example, uh, to the other countries bordering Ukraine through which uh, Ukraine has been supplied by NATO. The logical thing to do if we were fighting this war in any normal sense would have been to have attacked Ukraine's line of communications, its supplies. And moreover, and I think this is again significant, is that if you look at how Russia has been supported by the allies that declared their support for Russia at the beginning, that is to say Belarus and China, particularly China, nothing has happened. And China, quite specifically, has warned Russia against the use of nuclear weapons. My point here is that as the war uh, has continued, commentators, not already, have moved from the president of the Second World War to that of the First World War. And I said, I said I wouldn't mention it, but I'm going to mention it quickly. The point about the two world wars is that they both began in Eastern Europe. Uh, Serbia in 1914, Poland in 1939. Here is a great war that has begun in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, but unlike those two wars, and we're now two years into it, it has still not spread. Uh, the function of nuclear weapons, I would therefore argue, since 2022, and possibly since 1945, has not so much been to prevent war in the first place, which is what Bernard Brody believed might happen in 1945 when he heard about the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but to limit wars and to contain hostility. And this has worked at the bilateral level. I think of the example in 2008 of the terrorist attacks on Mumbai, which could have provoked confrontation between two nuclear powers, India and Pakistan, but did not. And it has worked at the multilateral level from Korea onwards, when, sure, there have been major wars in which great powers have been implicated, possibly using proxies, picking up that point. But still, we haven't got to the point where the nuclear threshold has been crossed. Now, as never before, with the war in Ukraine, nuclear weapons matter. If you now get rid of nuclear weapons, you are not going to get rid of war. If you now get rid of nuclear weapons, you aren't going to be able any the better to prevent war. Indeed, if you got rid of nuclear weapons now, one of the first things that might happen is that Ukraine, at this point has already been raised, uh, might wish to arm itself uh, with nuclear weapons if it could. Uh, so I urge you to support this motion um, and to recognise that the world has actually become safer. Thank you so much, Professor Strawn, for that insightful speech um, with a historical focus as well. Now, finally, as our last speaker of the evening, we have... Not to worry at all, and we'll make sure that, um, could we have a guest liaison go and sort of fetch um, Dr. Wilson's bag as well, please? Um, so finally, as our final speaker this evening, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Rebecca Johnson. Dr. Rebecca Johnson has been the head of the acronym 
Institute for Disarmament Diplomacy, honoured Occupied Greedham Common in the 80s. She's a lifelong campaigner, activist, doing extensive academic research on the issue of nuclear weapons, and we are delighted to welcome you today. Thank you very much. So thank you very much, uh, Mr. President. I want to start by actually reiterating the motion that we're debating. This House believes nuclear weapons have made the world safer. Now, I think this side of the House, not only the speakers here, but also many of the contributors from the floor have added very important points that show that indeed it has, the, 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 nuclear weapons have not made the world safer and also pose the questions, safer for whom? So I want to just expand a little bit on that before warming into some other arguments because I think it's very important that we know. Safer, for example, uh, we had a speaker here talking about the human aspect Deterrence, they couldn't sell deterrence until they got into the weeds of numbers theory and, and, and tried to, to uh, think out uh, to expel the human aspect. But it is the human aspect that is both the problem and, as we heard in the example of, of Colonel Petrov uh, brought up, actually makes a difference when... There's, new, there's computer errors, satellite errors, interpretation errors, miscalculation, mistakes that can bring the world not just to the brink of a nuclear war, but to the use of nuclear weapons that in very febrile situations and very fast decision times that do not really take human thinking into, into account can lead to what's known euphemistically as exchanges of nuclear weapons, but it's actually nuclear war. A nuclear war that destroys and then doesn't know when to stop destroying because that's part of the logic of deterrence with nuclear weapons when you've also got humans. Now, I, for a number of years, was the uh, spokesperson for security, peace and defence for the Green Party. And in that capacity, was invited to lecture two or three times a year at the Shrivenham Defence Academy, uh, not only on, 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 on the policies, but on nuclear treaties, because that's my area of expertise. That's what I did my PhD on. Um, also LSE, I'm afraid. <laughs> but... Um, and uh, one of the things I can tell you that Defence Academy at Shrivenham, I was teaching officers who have seen war, who've been in war, officers generally of major, uh, level major and above. And part of their training was to learn also about political and other forms of, and tools of deterrence. That could be used. The point here, and we are not arguing here against the notion of deterrence, that's from time immemorial been part of, of, of defence policies, and indeed part of our individual policies, certainly mine as a woman, at walking home at night, you know, uh, when I was a lot younger usually, I, they don't bother with me now, but <laughs> um, 
you know, in all kinds of ways. And what you're basically signaling is, don't mess with me, because you aren't going to like what you get. And I didn't have to carry a weapon to do that, but I did have to change and, you know, think about how I came across that kind of deterrence is the kind of deterrence we need to recognize is, is multidimensional. Those army uh, majors, they know it because they are trying to use it and they're trying to make it worse. The problem with nuclear weapons, well, the problem with deterrence is it does fail sometimes. It always fails sometimes. And this is how you, you get conflicts ending up into wars. The problem with nuclear weapons, and particularly the ideological, faith-based reliance on nuclear weapons as the deterrent. In fact, you're not even allowed to say that Britain has nuclear weapons. We're only allowed to talk about the nuclear deterrent. But you know, that makes it difficult to ask the question, does the deterrent deter? You logicians know how. So, you know, if you name a cat dog, or even if you genuinely believe that your cat is a dog, it doesn't actually confer the ability on the cat to bark. And this is part of what we are dealing with. So <clears throat> here we are uh, thinking about for whom. Uh, because this motion does not say... It, it says nuclear weapons have made the world safer. It doesn't say... Nuclear weapons have made certain nuclear weapon states' leaders feel safer. And it certainly, if you look right back to the beginning of the first explosions, and you've all, some of you will have seen Oppenheimer, and then the follow-up explosions known as nuclear... Well, then there was the follow-up explosions of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, two major cities, and then lots of nuclear testing, 2,000 nuclear tests all of which were exploding nuclear weapons above ground, underwater, in, in near space and, and, and underground. 2,000, often, usually, in fact, on the territories of indigenous people in the Pacific, in Australia, uh, Kazakhstan was where the Soviets, or they went up to the Arctic and the Nenets, the lands of the Nenets, Lopnor, the lands of the Uyghur people. Uh, the... Um, you, you know, you look at any nuclear weapon state, you know, the first French tests, Algeria, UK, use the, the US nuclear test site in, um, uh, in Nevada uh, for 23 of its nuclear tests. And indeed, the people, the Western Shoshone people of, of, of Nuva Zagobia, as they called it, just like the Pacific had names, you know, Mororoa, Fangataufa, those are names that had meaning for the Tahiti Polynesians. All of these, these people living in those places were not made safer by nuclear weapons at all. The people living along the route, I heard someone talk about, were you talking about Capenhurst? Um, yes. Uh, and we know that there are leukemia clusters around bases like Aldermaston, Burfield, Capenhurst. Um, there were around, I think they're still, uh, you know, doing great. There have been, there certainly were in the 80s when um, radioactive discharges from Aldermaston went into the Thames. Low level, admittedly, but in storms, they came up, uh, you know, underneath um, uh, after Nevet's primary school. And then they came up in quantities that were not safe. Uh, 
the nuclear warhead convoys that regularly still travel between the Berkshire bomb factories of Burfield and Aldermaston and the naval nuclear bases and, and bomb stores in Scotland, that, Scotland that doesn't actually want those, of Faslane and, and, and Coolport. Not safer. Those convoys, they've slipped off icy roads. The, uh, the, 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 the factories and the, 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 the convoys have been involved in near misses with things like fires and crashes and all kinds of things. Not safer. So let's just accept nuclear weapons have not made the world safer. Not everybody in the world. They also, and this is important, why do you think 93 countries in the world in only three years since the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was negotiated, a multilateral treaty negotiated in the UN General Assembly and adopted by 122 nations of the UN General Assembly. 93 of those in the first three years have signed and uh, 70, uh, 70 exactly now, we've just had an additional signature, are states parties. Now, this is the treaty of the future, and I want us, in, in, in recognising that nuclear weapons have not made us safe, also recognise that there are ways in which we can greatly reduce the dangers of nuclear weapons. Not necessarily down to zero, not perhaps in my lifetime, but we can. And that is through treaty making. And, uh, you know, this was what I was also teaching uh, in Shrivenham, was not just the nuclear treaties, but biological and chemical treaties. But this is the UN treaty. And we, uh, Florian and I and, and, and Ward, were at meetings at the UN of the second meeting of states parties. Now, what was so interesting about that was it was very practically focused on what we have to do to get the nuclear armed states, of which there are only nine, and 12,000 of their nuclear weapons are involved in, in both the Middle East and uh, particularly around the Ukraine war. We are relying on dumb luck, as Dean Atchins, Atchison, uh, who was Eisenhower's or Truman's uh, uh, Secretary of State, said after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Chatham House has done a study in 2014, 10 years ago, a study and said there were 13 very, very near misses. The Petrov incident was one of them. Abel Archer, a nuclear exercise on the borders of Germany in 1983, just about a month after the Petrov um, incident. These were very near misses. We didn't necessarily know about them at the time, but we've got the documents to know about them now. So what the treaty is trying to do, it doesn't just prohibit the production, possession, uh, testing, deployment of nuclear weapons, but it also um, deals with, and is really building up now, how, what you have to do to be able to verifiably eliminate the nuclear arsenals. Yeah. The treaty sounds like an excellent idea, but I suppose the worry is that, say, North Korea, who won't get rid of any nuclear weapons, will, if they're the only country to have them, just be able to push everyone else in the world around to do what they want, and Russia the same, China the same. Isn't that a serious concern? Thank, thank you for that point. I've just had the, 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 the please conclude or one minute or something. So I'm actually going to going to 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 just jump here 
that what we have to recognize is we actually can put the nuclear genie back into the bottle. That doesn't mean we can disinvent it. It means we control it. It means that we set up the systems for the safe, secure dis dismantling of nuclear weapons. And we know how, because actually Britain has done a lot of unilateral nuclear disarmament at the end of the Cold War. We, have, we work towards the INF Treaty and all of those land-based nuclear weapons, the cruise missiles, the Pershing II, the SS-20s on the Soviet side, got dismantled and, and dis disposed of. We have that, and Aldermaston doesn't need to keep making nuclear weapons. It needs to be contributing its skills, which are very considerable on this issue, towards the verification of the controlled elimination of all nuclear weapons. That means the controlling, the reductions, and then the elimination. This is a role where Britain can play a role in, as a former, or you know, as, as a, 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 you know, as, as, as a reducing nuclear armed state towards going beyond the nuclear dangers and helping the world to become a safer place we have a lot of work, work to do for this. The treaties can help us. They don't solve all the problems of human nature and war because we have to do that. And we have to do that with all the instruments and tools at our disposal, but not with nuclear weapons. So believing something, however ardently, does not make it tree, uh, true. To live in the real world, it makes sense to oppose this motion. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for that insightful speech. And thank you once again to all our speakers, but also to briefly thank as well is both Ivan and Gabriel, who worked with Sami, our debates officer, very hard to invite all these eminent guests. And what a fantastic debate it was. So could we please give our speakers and Gabriel and Ivan a round of applause? <laughs> now, after a sort of slightly sobering debate, um, I'll join you all at the bar, but please remember to get involved that there's at the back of every order paper all the rules for the debate each week, and let me know if you have any questions. Thank you so much.